Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church Podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that you gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance. Enjoy. Claire is the executive director of the Asylum Clinic. Uh, Since its founding in 2015, the clinic has provided legal consultation to over 105 individuals. Is that number still the case or is that ticked up at all? That's probably around there. Okay. Uh, Claire joined the McCrumman Immigration Law Group in 2017 as an associate attorney and took over the Asylum Clinic. Uh, Her practice is mainly focused on humanitarian-based applications, including asylum. She also manages the firm's contract to represent children in the United States without a parent or guardian who are facing deportation. I'm super curious about that one, so (laughs) I'm excited to ask you. Uh, Claire has also advocated for migrant farm workers in Missouri since she first moved to the state in 1998. So you love Missouri. She initially served as a volunteer for Project uh, and uh, was hired as project director of the Migrant Farm Workers Assistance Fund and served on their board as directors for three years. So that's Claire. Uh, Roger, on the other hand, is the managing partner of the McCrumman Immigration Law Group. He has experience in family and humanitarian-based immigration law, but his primary focus is on employment-based immigration law. And... uh, Knowing Roger being a humble person, I was going to make this event a little bit, uh, you know, I was, I was going to have some <laughs> braggy language in the event, and then, <laughs> and then I got an email back that was like, no, we, we like to be humble about it, but I'm going to share some of your uh, prestigious awards you've received, so <laughs> I don't know if you'll like this, but I'm going to share them anyways. Uh, he was elected to super lawyers by top-rated lawyer. He has an AV rating, which is the highest rating for Martindale Hubble Legal Directory for Ethics and Legal Competence. He was named it to Best Lawyers in America in Immigration Law by U.S. News and World Report. He's three-time elected chair of the Missouri-Kansas chapter of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. He was named the Best Bar in Immigration Law by the Kansas City Business Journal, the Best Lawyers in Kansas City Immigration Law, by Ingram's Business Magazine. So let's give a warm welcome to Claire and Roger. So as they come up here, there's a big disclaimer. None of what they're going to talk about is legal advice. And also, don't ask them for legal advice. <laughs> if you would like legal advice, call their office and you can set up an appointment. <laughs> They are not here to give you free legal advice. They are here to bless us with their knowledge and all the amazing work that they've done. So, yeah, sound good. Y'all feel good about it? So don't populate legal questions in the form. I will delete the email immediately. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So how's it going? Welcome to Brew Church. Thanks. This is is what we do. So, um, yeah, we're going to start with anything that I missed that you would want to tell people about the work that you've done or about yourself. And if you want, you can then just bleed into your story of how you got here. So how you got to doing this work. 
you start. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I hardly recognize that person you introduced, but uh, um, I, I've been doing immigration law now for about 20, I don't know, 20 something years. And, uh, but I, I've actually been a lawyer for like 40 years. And, and, um, and so I'm kind of classically um, the person who didn't know what they were wanted to do. And, and so I went from college to went to law school, but I really wasn't sure I wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, uh, then, then graduated, uh, I grew up in West Texas and, and grew up in, in church and uh, went to uh, move to New York and did a second law degree in international law and, uh, and then worked, um, I spoke German or speak <laughs> some, uh, and worked for a firm there that represented German investors in the U.S. And uh, so I, I was a corporate lawyer and I uh, got burned out uh, on that, went to seminary um, and went back, worked in a homeless mission for a few years in New York and, uh, um, uh, and then decided that wasn't what my calling was and, uh, uh, and then moved to Kansas City where my, my wife was, was from and we'd met in New York and, uh, and then picked up again with corporate law but didn't really like it and all of a sudden one day somebody sent a, uh, a uh, immigration case to us and uh, nobody in the firm knew much about it and they said, you know, why don't you take it? And, and so I, I kind of dabbled in it and I got fascinated with it and I, and I started going to meetings of the immigration lawyers and, uh, and then somebody referred an asylum case to me for a Somali woman and, uh, uh, and I uh, uh, did this case, went to court and I wasn't someone who usually went to court but went, went to court and won this case and the next day, about five more Somalis showed up in my office, you know, for asylum, and and uh, and all of a sudden, in my corporate law firm that I was just lowly associate in, I was um, doing tons of asylum work, and uh, uh, and there was a time where I'd done all this pondering about, you know, what what I should do with my life that would be meaningful. There was like this epiphany of this is what you should do, and. Uh, and I, um, uh, and so I, I embraced that, and uh, uh, and then gradually over time I, I started doing picking up business immigration clients, and then I was hiring people to continue doing the asylum work because I felt very committed to that. And but in this epiphany that I had, um, you know, I grew up reading scripture, and I'd read all these verses uh, about uh, the Lord and the immigrant or the alien or the foreigner you know the and there there's a there's a hebrew word for for it um that's used 90 to, 92 times in the old testament and uh, and throughout the old testament and and then carried over into the new testament there is this attitude that god loves the foreigner and that he wants his people to treat them the same way they would the native born and in fact, there there is kind of a a group of four that I see in, in the uh, uh, that are mentioned constantly by the prophets in the Old Testament. There's the there's the widow, and the orphan, and the poor, and the alien. You know, and and that the Lord has a special regard for them. And so these scriptures that I I had read in my life that I always thought was just some sort of curiosity about uh, ancient culture you know like they showed hospitality to people 
that that was just something about their culture. All of a sudden, it kind of hit home to me that, oh, this is, this is a group that the Lord wants me to, to connect to, you know, to be, to be involved with. And so eventually my, my old firm that was <laughs> representing banks and stuff, you know, that didn't like the immigration work I was doing, um, broke up and my little immigration group stayed together and then we'd hire people. Um, and, and the thing we always emphasized was you should have a calling to represent immigrants, not, not this is just your first legal job or something like that. And, uh, and so we, we definitely, I think, have in our firm that, that mentality that this is, this is a calling, not just a, uh, not just a job. And I feel actually very blessed that, that I, I got to that point where I feel like I'm, I'm doing something that, that is something I'm really called to do. And uh, so that's, that's kind of my story. Yeah. All right, Claire, what about you? Yeah, so I, I kind of lucked out in that, I mean, I 100% echo what Roger's saying, that doing immigration-related advocacy for me has been a calling, and I just was, had the blessing of understanding it pretty early on in my, in my path, and um, I always knew I wanted to learn Spanish. As a child, I actually grew up in California, and I grew up driving from Northern California down to Southern California, because that's where my mom was from, and I would see migrant workers. And I just have a very vivid memory of seeing workers in the field and um, being in Southern California and being close to the border and, and wanting to understand that and where these people were from and, um, and wanting to learn their language and, and understand the relationship between the United States and, and Mexico and other, other people who came here. So when I went to college, I had the opportunity to spend my third year abroad, and I wanted to learn Spanish, so I went to Mexico City and Santiago, Chile. So I spent a semester in each, and I was able to learn Spanish, which was just a huge gift in my life, and I loved it, and I loved the opportunity to be meeting new people and learning about new you know, cultures that were different from the one that I had grown up in. And um, so when I graduated from college, um, I had I looked for a place where I could continue using my Spanish. I wanted to do a year of service work. And so I was at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana and they had what's called the Center for Social Concerns. And there was a job posting that popped up that said, live at a Catholic worker house in Kansas City, Missouri and work at Legal Aid of Western Missouri doing migrant farm worker outreach. And I was like, okay, I'll go to Kansas City. Why not? <laughs> so that's what brought me here. Um, and I've been here ever since. That was 1998. So I started off as kind of a paralegal and doing social service coordination for migrant workers. Many of them had, um, you know, severe health issues while they were here. Some of it related to having children. Some of them were cancer. Some of them were needing it. One woman we helped navigate through getting an organ transplant, a kidney transplant. And so um, I learned a lot of skills about case management and social work principles and integrating um, those with, with paralegal work, because they all also had immigration needs. So when I was ready to go to law school, I decided I was gonna go to University of Missouri and stay in Missouri and pay in state tuition, which was <laughs> important for wanting to do nonprofit work. Um, and then uh, become an immigration attorney. That was, I, I knew going into law school, that's what I wanted to do, and it, it helped guide my education in that way. So it was, it was, it was great to learn that early. Um, and then I came out of law school, I clerked for a judge for a couple years, and then I started one year at a family practice doing family-based immigration. And then I actually stepped out for eight years to have three kids <laughs> really quickly back to back. 
um, and be a mom. And then um, Trump got elected. This was 2017. And so I was like, this is going to get really interesting really fast. Um, just listening to the rhetoric that was, that was happening during the election and, and the ways that immigrants were being vilified, I could tell that um, if he won, um, it was going to be a very rocky road for immigrants here in the United States and that policies were going to be very dramatically shifting. So um, that's when I had the opportunity. Someone said, hey, you should meet Roger. You guys should go, go to lunch. And so we went to lunch, and he said, I'm looking for somebody to help me launch this clinic that I started. Um, and at that time, it was basically like a nonprofit that had been registered, I think, with the state of Missouri. And, but we hadn't actually been able to build it out um, to start serving you know, on a bigger scale. And so I was like, this is my dream job. This is, this is exactly what I should be doing right now at this moment. So, um, so that was 2017, and here we are five years later. Um, getting the clinic kind of I feel like it's about to launch into into its full uh its full its full bore uh ahead you know capacity building phase so that's that's where we're at right now maybe tell us what the clinic does right now like the two grants we have yeah so right now the asylum clinic so I kind of think of it like the nonprofit wing of McCrumman Immigration Law Group um when I first you know, got hired, I thought I was just going to be doing a caseload of asylum cases. So people here in the United States seeking protection from the U.S. government because they couldn't go home because they feared going home due to persecution for who they were. So sometimes it's... Um, it's not protection from the U.S. government, but the U.S. government seeking, offering protection from... from yeah, per yeah, the U.S. government protect them from their their government in their home country, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so most, most of the cases are asylum. So I started developing a caseload of asylum cases, mostly folks in removal proceedings. Removal proceedings means that you um, have been, your case has been filed in front of an immigration judge and the government's actively trying to send you home. And so people have to attend court hearings and present a, a, a defense. They have to say, I, don't, I shouldn't be sent home because I qualify for asylum. I started building this caseload, and then the Vera Institute of Justice, which is a, um, a justice advocacy organization out of New York, knocked on our door at Uncommon Immigration Law Group and said, the Office of Refugee Administration is going to be opening a shelter in Topeka, Kansas, for children who are present in the United States without a parent or legal guardian. These, these individuals are called unaccompanied minors, and we need legal service providers to provide legal services to these kids. Um, kids that are, are, they're technically detained. So kids that are detained, uh, it's mandated that the US government give them access to an attorney while they're detained. And so Roger and I kind of put our heads together and we're like, can we do this? Should we do this? I don't know. And, he, and I said, well, let's just, let's just apply for the funding and see. And so we did and we got the grant and that kind of um, um, has been a, a feeder, a growth mechanism for our clinic because we've gotten the opportunity to have a funding stream and also great training and um, access to a, a nationwide network of other legal service providers that do the same work. So we, we started doing that, um, serving the detained facility, and then that, that funding expanded to serve kids that were released into the community, um, not just from, from the villages, but also from other facilities across the country. 
so that was the first grant funding that we got to do to do this humanitarian work. And then, um, let's see, when did we get the Afghan Legal Services grant? It was last, last May. So then um, I'd been kind of considering how to expand our funding, how to expand our, our, our work, and the opportunity again presented itself to me um, in the way of a grant that nobody else wanted to write, um, which was to um, do coordinate Afghan legal services for evacuees after the fall of Kabul. Um, I don't know if you if you all know too much about this, but in about uh, I want to say it's close to like eighty thousand evacuees came to the United States after the fall of Kabul and were brought in through military bases and then spread out across the country to different refugee resettlement organizations. Um, and all of them actually didn't have refugee status at the time. And so there became this urgent need and I could see the writing on the wall of what, what's gonna happen to these folks? They've come here, they have parole, which is basically a permission to enter and like two years of permission to be here and then, and then it expires. How are they going to have a long-term status here? I started getting calls from other people um, doing immigration work in Kansas City, like, oh my gosh, there's Afghans arriving now daily, um, and no attorneys that were assigned to these cases, no attorneys at the at the resettlement um, agencies. So we wrote a grant, and we hired an attorney and developed the Afghan Legal Services Project under the Asylum Clinic Kansas City to serve that new population of people. So we're doing that work now as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so a theme. And, and I just want to, like, I, I, having had conversations with them, um, and the reason I was, you know, so excited to, to, um, to, you know, have this conversation with you all is, I don't know if it's obvious, but this is pro bono work, right? Like, you generally don't charge these people anything. Um, and so, you know, when you were talking about calling, you were saying, like, y you people choose to do this law versus other type of law because it's not as lucrative as maybe other versions of, of law. And for you to say, I'm gonna take my law degree and go into a nonprofit organization where I have to write grants, like I just, I, just, I don't know, I, I think that's just amazing that your heart and passion and you care so deeply about these people that are trying to find a place to call home um, that's just amazing. You know, I, I think that's like, I, I just want to name that because I know, I know that it's not the most lucrative thing that your law firm could be doing. So uh, that's really awesome that you've gotten those grants. I'm sure that helps <laughs> a lot um, with that. Uh, so to, to talk a little bit about the immigration, uh, the, your, your side of it, because uh, you shared a little bit about some of your uh, lawyers and what what they do in terms of advocacy work and things like that and I'm sure there's a lot of crossover so maybe talk a little bit about some of what you do and then the relationship that you all have with the your nonprofit arm and sort of how all that works together as an as an organism okay <laughs> well I I do get paid <laughs> so I, I, I mostly do work for, for corporations now uh, in, in needing visas and work, work authorization for people they hire. So, so typically, um, and, and that helps fund the, the pro bono type stuff we, we do too. So that's really how our staff mostly gets paid. Although 
these government grants do cover Claire's salary and, and her staff too. We have how many, like four uh, paralegals now and, and, and two lawyers that, that just work on the humanitarian stuff. But, but I typically, you know, we represent some of the, the major, you know, engineering firms and, and IT and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and so we, we, we try to think of, you know, they're not people, they're typically people maybe came to, to college at KU or something and got a degree in engineering and then they got hired by some engineering firm here and, and they get temporary work authorization and they need to try to convert it into a longer term work authorization, eventually try to get a green card and citizenship. And that whole process takes years and it's very complex and, and easy to mess up. And so we kind of help steer them through it. And we try to, even the people that work on the business immigration side of things, we try to emphasize that, uh, you know, these people need our help just as much as the Somali refugees that are here or Afghan refugees. And, and, uh, and so, but it is, it, it is a different kind of practice, you know, like my, the people that I'm working with every day tend to be professionals and uh, whereas uh, and so everything's by email and things like that whereas the group Claire's working with comes in with Walmart sacks full of you know documents and kind of tosses them on her table you know and uh, and so it's it's it, which is one of the cool things about immigration work is that you're working with everybody from the migrant farm worker to some nuclear scientist you know like it's just this whole wide range of of people that that I think really contribute a lot to, to America. And, and there, there's a lot of myths out there about immigrants coming to the U.S. Uh, that, that they're coming to destroy things. And that's, that's not, my not my feeling at all, that they come to really add a lot. In fact, I, we, we've both been down to the, the border and, and worked with um, people who've come in the border there, uh, women and, and children that are being held um, and pending uh, claims for asylum. And, and all of a sudden, w one day I was talking to them and I just realized just how absolutely heroic these women were to have crossed thousands of miles with two children crossing rivers and stuff to escape some sort of persecution. And yet the, the, the prevailing narrative out there is always that, oh, they're just coming here to leech off the US, you know. That is not so. I mean, these are heroic, strong people. And, and during the, the heyday of, of American immigration, you know, in the early 1800s and, and, and stuff, you know, there was this saying that, that went something like, um, the cowards never left and the weak died on the way and the strong settled in America. And, and, uh, and, and America is a nation of immigrants. And, and, uh, and they, they add a lot. And, and I feel like we're constantly trying to dispel that, that myth, you know. And, but I definitely s see it with the, you know, the kind of professionals we work with. They really add a lot to the businesses that they're with. And the businesses are, are crying out for more. And our immigration policy has really stunted um, the ability to bring more. We have um, the, 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 the general uh, professional work visa is called an H-1B. And, my wife is an expert on H-1Bs, and 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 they have they actually ha our government has a limit on how many new H-1Bs can come every year. So these are typically like you know what we see are engineers, IT professionals, and and um, they're, they're jobs that require a bachelor's degree in a specialized area. And 
And our policy right now has them limited to a lottery every year that, that is, in fact, it's gonna start here in a week. Uh, there's a little week, about 10 days here where people can register for this. And then they do a lottery to select which ones will get processed. And then, and then you file these applications, which may or may not get approved. But, but for the amount we've allotted, only about 20% actually even get the ability to be processed. And yet these companies are paying thousands of dollars just for the hope that maybe they can get a work visa for this person, that they're required to pay them the same wage they pay US workers but there's a crying need for more of these kind of professionals that our, our government policy doesn't even even permit now. It's really, it's really kind of crazy. I mean, and, that, and it's, I, in my opinion, it's fueling inflation in the country because, because they're constantly poaching each other's workers and increasing their, their, their rates because we have a need for more IT professional workers than, than we produce right now from our colleges. Mm -hmm. Claire, you, did you have uh, something to add yeah, to that I before I asked you? <laughs> I just want to add about um, you know the symbiosis between our business-based practice and our clinic. I feel like um, it's really unusual for a business-based firm to have a, a nonprofit side like this one, and um, you know it, it's it's because of Roger's vision and his heart and his desire to expand the reach of the firm to people who can't afford an attorney and. Um, but it also brings in a certain type of person who who is drawn to this work, and it, it really enhances the caliber of the attorneys, I think, who are attracted to the firm. Even if they're coming um, and being and working on the business side, they have the opportunity to take pro bono cases, and it... it yeah, and they do. And I mean, do. our business immigration attorneys also take asylum cases. They take yeah. asylum cases. They help with the Afghan work. They help with um, clinics that we run. They, they'll help with research. They'll take cases, and it... I think it really um, helps their, them feel really well-rounded in their own work and learn not just business cases, but other types of cases as well. So it's this mutually beneficial thing that we have going that um, is just really special. It's really unusual and really special, so. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, you, were, you were saying, I remember when we were in there, that you have a bunch of young lawyers that are saying this is the kind of work that we want to do. They're coming to you and they're excited about immigration <laughs> work, which is like, why, you know, you could, like, like I said earlier, you know, you could graduate from law school and go to corporate law or whatever. And, you know, I'm sure, I don't know, it's, it's maybe not, uh, maybe it's as grueling. I don't know anything <laughs> at all, but um, people are choosing to do this kind of work. And that's, and that's really cool to hear. Law is one of those professions that has the highest one of the highest rates of people leaving the profession. Um, that I'm, I'm constantly reading, and it's because you feel a certain meaninglessness about it, you know. And um, mm -hmm. and I I I marvel at the people that come that say they went to law school knowing they wanted to represent immigrants, because I certainly had didn't have that that feeling, and and I'm just. Uh, I just admire people who had that conviction already, you know, like they, they wanted to do something in the public service area. Yeah, so um, a couple things that I remember you talking about that, that's, that's different from the work that you do versus, you know, maybe a lawyer working at a different law firm is that you do some advocacy work. So you'll, you'll send your lawyers or, or they'll go, I don't know how that, how that works exactly, to go to protests 
And that, <laughs> did you say that's that's not billable hours, right? Typically, <laughs> so they'll they'll go to protest, or um, you know, you've talked uh, about it's some other things that they'll do. So expand on s some of the work that you do outside of maybe the cases themselves um, in in this world. Well, I speak at places like this, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, I, I, we, we do think it's, uh, it's part of our job, and it's something I emphasize when we hire people is that we think advocacy is part of our job. So it's not just representing individuals, but it is, it is trying to get a, a system changed, you know, because at some point you, you start to say there are systemic problems with our immigration policy, and, and those get, get dealt with on the political level. And the, uh, the level of political discourse on this has changed so much even since when I first started um, doing immigration work, which was in, in 1994. Um, but but I've, I've, I've been to, have you been to DC? To yeah. Well, I've been several times to, to Washington to, to lobby in congressional offices and, and um, that's always a very fruitless <laughs> endeavor, <laughs> you know, because I don't bring any money with me, but, uh, but um, um, <laughs> But I, I, the American Immigration Lawyers Association has a lobby day every year, and so we, a lot of our lawyers have participated in that. And, uh, um, and, and I have been to a number of, of, of protests, and, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, the Trump years were a depressing period for this because, you know, it, it starts out with the Muslim ban and, and, and just, you know, one thing after another. We saw, I mean, there was a drop in legal immigration of 50% during the Trump years, and, and it was a, con a concentrated effort to, to end immigration in, for the most part. And, uh, uh, and you know, uh, you, the, the quota for refugee admissions. So refugees are people fleeing persecution, but they're processed outside the United States and, and uh, through the uh, United Nations. Uh, and. Um, and then resettled in, in countries. Our quota was about 105,000 during the o Obama years. Um, the last year of um, Trump, it was uh, less than 2,000 were processed. And, uh, uh, and, but, uh, but even um, last year for, for uh, Biden, it was 20,000. So it's still, it's still down a lot, you know, we're, yeah. um, and, 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 and so it, it's a it's a question of, of justice in my mind and um, uh, in a biblical sense biblical justice you know where where you're advocating for those who are the least powerful in your society what what I think the scripture would call the least of these and and um, and so yeah we 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 encourage that a lot and uh, we've sent uh, most of our lawyers down to the southern border to volunteer on on things down there and that's not not billable either, but, um, but I, I think it's part of what forms um, the right kind of spirit within the lawyer, you know, to, to be exposed to this kind of stuff and, and, and work with it. Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, I, I've, anyway, I've yeah. done a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you I know, would say too. Radio, I've written editorials, you know, things like that. And, Hmm. do what, what I can, but it, I mean, I, I can't say I've seen a lot of fruit from it, you know, because <laughs> yeah. it's just, the fruit's probably more interior than it is, you know, with the uh, uh, changing of the laws. Yeah. Did you, did you have something? I to was going to say that, you know, as when we were developing the clinic, we were thinking about our vision and our mission and what we want to do. And, and so we created what the pillars of our work are. And one of them is direct services to, to immigrants. 
One of them is community awareness. So things like this, where we want to bring people in and help people understand like a very, very complex policy and legal issue that's that affects all Americans are affected by immigration policy. And then systemic advocacy is the last pillar. And that includes just things like sending emails to Josh Hawley and being like, why are you doing this? I don't understand. This is not the way we should be doing things in Missouri. Um, or just on, on local officials, you know, all, all levels, trying to advocate for change so that um, the problems that persist um, might not continue going in these, these bad directions. They might, we, we might be able to correct, course correct on some of them, hopefully. Yeah, I, one, th one thing we've talked about here, um, just yeah, I, uh, I took a class in seminary where I read a bunch of books from people like M Miguel de la Torre and others who are theologians who kind of work in the sort of the um, refugee immigration idea and talk about justice for immigrants. And we've talked a lot about here how, um, you know, people have this misconception that, well, these people are fleeing their country that has their own problems. Why don't they just fix their country? And the misconception is that the United States didn't have a hand in that. Like you think about what happened with the United Fruit Company and how it created this banana republics to completely upend governments in a bunch of South American countries just so we could have cheap bananas. So the fact that we have bananas that are you know 60 cents per pound at the grocery store is because the United States got involved and these um, this American company bought thousands of acres of land from these poor farmers that now worked for meager wages. And so, um, you know, it's there, there's some reckoning that's happening. Uh, you think about um, Mexico, the United States purposefully subsidized corn so that it would be cheaper, American corn would be cheaper than Mexican corn, which caused all these subsistence farmers to lose their farms, lose their jobs, and the economy to be in flux because corn was a huge part of the Mexi Mexican economy. So for there to be this idea that it's like, well, let them fix their own country, and it's like, wait a minute. Yeah. There, there, there's the, 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 the way that Miguel de la Torre says it, and I just think it's powerful, is we paved roads to ship products from those countries and now those people are walking on those same roads to come to America. That is just powerful. Um, so I don't know if you have a thought on that, but then I have a question for you about a funny story um, that you told me about uh, one of your political rivals. Well, yeah, <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think I was gonna forget that. <laughs> you have to tell that story. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it, it's true. A, a, a lot of national policy has created the conditions that have caused people to flee to the North. And, and during the, the uh, uh, Trump administration, th their response was, let's cut off any aid to those countries. Well, that just creates more, more of a pressure on the border. And, um, uh, and, and you know, the solutions are, are complex, but how do you expect these powerless people to change their government? You know, a, a group of people that are being persecuted by their own government, you're gonna expect them to go and, and reform? You know, they just need rescue for now, and, and, and reform's gonna be at a bigger level. Um, what was the story you wanted to Okay, hear? yeah. Um, yeah, uh, sorry, just one more thing to add to that. Um, people risk their lives. Like, brown bodies are dying at the border. Um, and people do it because they have no other option. And so it's, yeah, it's like what you're saying. Uh, the funny story was, uh, so, you had talked about uh, some signs, oh or 
<laughs> yeah, so, so uh, yeah, please, <laughs> if, you, yeah. if you feel comfortable sharing, if you don't, you can tell me no. <laughs> yeah. Do y'all know who Chris Kobach is? Um, okay, well, he and I go way back, but, but uh, I, I, I... Would you say he hates your guts? No. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I didn't even think he knew who I was, but we... We uh, we debated once on TV, but that was probably 20 years ago. And and uh, uh, on and so he's been carrying this this hatred of immigrants for a long time. And uh, and he used to have a radio show, and I used to listen to that. And and um, he he w taught immigration policy. I mean, he, he taught at UMKC. He was a professor at the law school. And 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 um, I uh, uh, w with my when I was president of the local chapter of American Immigration Lawyers um, wrote a letter to the dean um, saying that we protested his, and that I wouldn't hire anybody that took his class. And uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I know, uh, because, well, because what he was teaching was basically like, you know, right out of Rush Limbaugh type politics, you know, it was, it was the, the worst, uh, he was teaching immigration policy, but not immigration law, but he was teaching it in a very Anyway, a, a way that was, um, I thought was, well, false in, in a lot of ways, but also just, you know, why would you hire somebody that, that was ingrained in that kind of uh, thinking? And, um, uh, and, and so we had clashed a few times, but not, not very much. I, honestly, I didn't really think he knew who I was, but I was uh, uh, at, a, at an event out in Topeka. I don't know why you want to hear this story. But, uh, <laughs> um, I was out at an event in Topeka, and, uh, and it was at a shooting range, and it was a fundraiser for some other group I was part of that was had to do with bagpiping. And, and uh, um, I know, it's <laughs> I'm a piper. And, uh, um, and Roger, this is exactly why we wanted to hear that story. <laughs> well, uh, and so, and, and of course, I go to this place, and, and it's out, and it's this, uh, you know, sort of skeet shooting type range. And, uh, and I don't shoot, but I was out there for the fundraiser, and and um, and you know at the at the this lodge where it is there's there's the big Second Amendment you know is you know plastered on the wall real big there and uh, uh, and and there was a big stack of Kobach signs and I thought is he running for something and and <laughs> he's Attorney General now you know and uh, but um for for Kansas which is a, a a disaster really in the making because he's already talked about uh, making it illegal for people to rent uh, housing to um, uh, undocumented immigrants and stuff but anyway there was this stack of signs there and and so I thought he's not running for anything this is just probably left over from some old campaign and I, so I picked up one and I thought I'm gonna bring it back to the office and we can deface it you know or something and, <laughs> and put a target on it and and uh, and I put it in the trunk of my car and then I'm walking around and somebody said hey you know Kobach's coming here today for a rally and I, I thought oh shoot you know isn't it illegal to steal signs <laughs> and uh, uh, and so so I, I kind of you know, when nobody was looking, I kind of snuck over and took it back out of the car and, and put it back on the stack. And, and then, then I was, uh, as I was starting to leave, um, Kobach pulls up and, uh, in his truck. And, and, um, and so he's walking towards me and he says, hi, Mr. McCrumman. <laughs> and I thought, how did you even know my name? You know, I, really, I did, just didn't think he, he, he I, I'm still kind of astonished that he did. And, and he, um, well, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, that was that was a long time ago, and and uh, but um, 
but anyway, he he knew my name, and, 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 he, and he asked me if I'd like to go chew with him. You know, he said, I, I told him I was there for a second. I think he thought I was there to protest, really. You know, he was like looking me over, and, and uh, I said, no, I was here for this other fundraiser, and he, he said, why don't, why don't you come shoot with me? And I, and I said, no, I'm not interested. But, uh, but afterwards, I thought, man, that would have been a great photo op, you know, me and Kobach together holding a gun, you know. But, uh, <laughs> um, so... <laughs> But there was another another event I think was more significant than that. Oh uh, yeah, where, yeah. Where we, Kobach was running for something, and uh, you know he's run for a lot of offices, and uh, and and uh, he was Secretary of State for a while, and and Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Do you know who he is? So Maricopa County, uh, and uh, and I mean he was convicted of crime and then pardoned by Trump, you know, for his treatment of of immigrants, and and uh, he came out to support. Kobach, and they were speaking together, and it was some event. Well, first it was going to be out at Mid-American Nazarene College, and I go to a Nazarene church, and I, and I called some people, and I said, I can't believe you're going to bring this this to the campus, and 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 I don't take credit for it, but at some point, somebody nixed it, and they and they had to go somewhere else, and uh, I think I just made them aware of it, but um, uh, and uh, and so anyway, a bunch of American immigration lawyers. Um, showed up to protest. We decided we're going to have a protest there, and we brought a lot of our office. My son was out there. I'm proud of him for being there because he was like 12 at the time or something and, and um, held up signs and everything. And, and we had maybe 50 people. I don't know. You were there too. You, uh, was that about right? Maybe 50 or so. We were standing all along the street there holding up signs. And, and, um, uh, and all of a sudden, this, this bus pulled up, about three buses really, and, and there was a convention of the... Um, NAACP happening in town and uh, and they got word of it and they all got on buses and showed up and joined us in this this protest line and, and it almost made me cry because it was like they they didn't have a stake in this you know uh, but they recognized that there was a similarity between the way immigrants are treated and the way African Americans are treated and uh, and it really meant so much to me to see that that and, and we didn't even know it was going to happen you know they just showed up and and, and joined in the the protest, so I, I thought that was cool, and then I didn't see Kobach on that that occasion. But but they they ended <laughs> they ended their rally quick uh, before it was supposed to because there was some bomb threat, and I think they blamed it on you know people like us. But um, but anyway, yeah, I thought yeah. that was a cooler event really than me filching <laughs> one of his songs. Oh, but, but the the, <laughs> the sign one was just so good. You had to tell that one. So um, I, I would say we have time for one more question. And I know, Claire, this is kind of your, your realm. Um, and then we can talk a little bit about how people can support um, the work that you do, which honestly, what they said, what they said is really financially supporting, um, you know, the asylum clinic. And so it, that, that's, you know, I can reference that back at the end. But um, what's, what's the current situation? Um, what's happening at the border? Maybe what were some of the maybe pressure points? I know you said it's complex. Um, so yeah. about as uh, you know normal person non legalese that you can make it. <laughs> That'd be great. But yeah, what's going on? Where? What are yeah. you? What's the work that you're doing right now? What are the people feeling that are coming to desperate? You know, to the United States. Yeah. So the border. This is like one of the hardest questions I get because. <clears throat> what happens at the border is changing on a daily basis. It's guided by all kinds of different policies that are in place. It changes depending upon which port of entry somebody's 
crossing at. The U.S. border with Mexico is a huge region. Um, but there, there's been several policies in play for a couple of years that have kind of defined what people can come to expect if they try to cross the border. Um, one of them has been what's called T-42. And T-42 is basically a, it was originally like a pandemic-related policy response to COVID saying because of COVID, we cannot process people and bring them into the United States to seek asylum because they're going to be spreading a contagious virus. So um, it was a way to seal the border and rely on a health um, basis to do so. And so then a whole policy of like T42 exemptions started popping up. Like, can we process some people who have you know, that was a policy of the Trump administration, but then it yeah. got continued in, in the Biden administration. Yes, yeah. so it, it started under Trump, it continued under Biden. Um, there's always any policy like T42 is going to ha have um, all kinds of things happen in the court where people fight to end the policy and then other people fight to reinstate the policy. So all of those things would have been happening with T42. Um, and then basically the U.S. government has decided to end emergency-related pandemic responses as of May 11th. And so there was a Supreme Court case that was actually pending and the US Supreme Court was gonna give, um, have here a case, there was gonna be oral arguments, but they actually just recently announced that they, 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 um, they didn't moot the case, but they said they weren't gonna hear oral arguments on the case because now that the pandemic's over, it's, it's assumed that T42 as of May is going to be ended as a policy at the border. So that's one way that the government has has developed a policy so to kind of keep people. So if they didn't have Title Forty Two, what would what so would the situation be? Like, what would they be required well, to do? They would be the required to allow people to, if they enter into the United States um, by law, if they express fear to return to their home country, they're supposed to be given what's called a credible fear interview, and then um, government officials can decide if they do merit the chance to seek asylum. Or if not, they might get what's called um, automatically, basically expelled back to their uh, home country. Yeah. So um, expedited removal. Expedite removal. There you go. Sorry, my brain. Um, so yeah. So if if people could pass credible fear interview, they could come into the United States, be in removal proceedings, and seek asylum in front of a, a, a judge. But that's what that's the policy that we're supposed to allow people to do to give them the chance, the opportunity to present their case and have the, the chance to get asylum. But if they can't even enter the United States, then they don't have that. That door is already closed to them. So T42 is one of the ways that, um, that the government's been keep trying to keep people out. MPP is another one. The name of it just is so ironic because it's called the Migrant Protection Protocols. So they named it basically the exact opposite of what it accomplishes, which is um, it, it's, a no mean, it's, it's not a way to protect migrants. It's a way to keep them from coming into the United States to seek asylum. And this has also had like a very long and storied history of, of lawsuits and... Um, the Remain in Mexico? Yeah. yeah. So it, what it was was um, they said, okay, fine, you can come here, you can try to seek asylum, you can, you can cross the border, but what we're going to do is we're going to, instead of processing you into the interior, we're going to put you back into Mexico, and you can wait in Mexico, and we'll set up these port courts. So they set up this whole system of basically like big big courts um, to have 
kind of expedited removal proceedings along the border. So all of this is to prevent people from coming into our, you know, the interior of the country and make them stay. And what happened was these large tent cities developed along the border, and they were very dangerous. Um, they didn't have good hygiene there. There was it's a lot of kidnappings. A lot of yeah, a lot of cartels yeah. would exploit the people who were living in these in these tent cities. Um, there was whole families there. There was no schooling. There was no bathrooms. I mean, it was just a humanitarian disaster um, on on many many levels. So Biden, when he came into office, he wanted to wind it down, and then he was actually sued to prevent him from shutting the program down, and then. He tried to actually reinstate it in, in reaction to this lawsuit. And then in February of 2023, the Mexican government said, no, like we, we're, we're not going to allow this anymore. So, so because of Mexico's response, MPP is not going to be reinstated again. So it, that program is over at the moment. But there's a lot of people left over from these MPP hearings whose, whose cases are kind of in this limbo now because they were supposed to have hearings. They may or may not have had them or they had a hearing that was like so um, um, in violation of their due process rights that they really deserve a different hearing in an immigration court where they could actually see an immigration judge and not be forced through this rapid fire immigration process at the border. Um, so that, that's MPP. And then now the most recent um, policy is called the third country transit ban. And this was also something that Trump originally um, instituted while he was um, president. And basically the idea is, okay, if you're on your way to the United States and you're passing through a bunch of other countries to get here, why don't you just claim asylum there? You should, you should be able to claim asylum in Nicaragua or El Salvador or Honduras. Why do you have to come to the United States? Well, the reason is because those places aren't developed enough. They don't have an infrastructure to um, address asylum seekers' needs a lot of people from those countries are fleeing to come to the United States. So um, it's, it's just, of course, the government knows that they're never going to be able to seek asylum in, in any of these places along the way. It's just another way to disqualify them, to make asylum harder to attain, um, to make it easier for the US government to say they're banned, um, and not give them access to like the only possible way they could attain legal status, most of them, because there just aren't other legal ways for them to come to the United States and have, have lawful status. Dang. <laughs> that, <laughs> Sorry for the, no, no, the, border, that, the border stuff is really honestly yeah, very no. depressing. So, it's very heavy. No, honestly, that's yeah. super, it's just helpful to know like what is going on and, and yeah, what what's preventing people from being able to find yeah, a safe so space. So if you wonder why people come in illegally, it's because it's almost impossible to come in legally. And even when you're fleeing, persecution although we have international obligations to to give a reasonable chance for uh, for asylum for people seeking it uh, but it's um, we don't have the political will for it but you know I can contrast that with a place like Germany that admitted a million Syrian refugees and Germany is about a quarter the size of Texas you know and here we are choking at admitting admitting 20,000 you know it's there's there's a real political issue here that that doesn't have to do anything to do with our capacity because you know when we're when we're talking about 3.5% unemployment rate in this country we could use more workers i mean it's not they're not taking our jobs you know it's it, it's um, but there there is a very strong anti-immigrant 
feelings and it, and a lot of it's been uh, been ratcheted up you know in the previous administration and uh, and it's brought out a lot of the worst in in uh, in some uh, you know some Americans thinking about it and, it and it's you know it's it's a real it's a real um, issue of sin I think and evil you know mm. dang it's a strong word <laughs> yeah. uh, Claire did you have did you have a thought you raised your mic a little bit but yeah. I, um, I uh, to get to the Q&A we have 11 I've never had this many questions in my email <laughs> at an event. I don't think we'll get to all of them, but we'll try to answer as many as uh, we possibly can. But yeah, uh, what, what did you have well, to say? I Sorry to interrupt you. I didn't get the chance to talk about kids at the border because that's really the, the yeah, area yeah, that yeah, I really yeah. focus on is kids because we do have special laws to protect children. It's one area that, um, although Trump really tried to diminish protections for children, they do still exist, and um, not all of them could be stripped away. And one of them is that if a child presents without a parent or legal guardian under the age of 18 at the at the border, they aren't subject to some of these policies that adults would be subject to, and that they are processed through. Um, CBP is not allowed to hold kids for more than 72 hours once they recognize them as an unaccompanied minor, and then they get processed to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So because, because our border is so hard, um, um, to pass for families and adults, a lot of families are sending kids forward alone because they know that they're not going to be able to come as a family unit, and so they'll push children, um, sometimes, you know, honestly, as young as toddlers g end up at the border alone. The, the, the shelter that I serve is licensed for kids 7 uh, to age 17.99999, and so... Um, I don't see little kids often, but um, some shelter, some ORR facilities do. And so about 150 um, unaccompanied children enter the United States every single year. And um, some of them end up coming to Missouri and to Kansas. I looked up the numbers for the fiscal year of 2022, and about 1,000 unaccompanied children were released to sponsors in the state of Missouri and about 800 in the state of Kansas, and all of those kids would be in removal proceedings, and all of them need access to an attorney. And I mean, I think there's, you know, amongst our chapter, a lot of people take kids' cases, but there aren't very many attorneys that focus on kids' cases, and I could never, I mean, there's no way I can e even meet a fract a tiny fraction of this, of this number. So it just gives you a sense of the size of the need that exists, and the number of people coming to our to our community, to our states, and all of those, it, whether they're in Missouri or Kansas, they'd all be scheduled in the Kansas City Immigration Court. We have one immigration court in Kansas City that serves both Missouri and Kansas. So. They don't have a, a legal right to representation by an attorney, right. so they're not criminal proceedings, and so they're not, you know, they don't get public defenders or something like that representing them. But yeah, they have to hire an attorney, yeah. Yeah, dang, that's kids. Yeah. So, um, I have, we're at 6.03, but do you, uh, are you guys okay with uh, answering some of these questions? We, <laughs> okay, go. I, I'm going to try to condense. I condensed a few of them because okay. they were similar. Okay. So luckily that can help with the 11 questions that we have. Um, but this one I think is a little bit shorter, and then I'll ask you a couple of the other ones that I condensed down. Uh, do H-1Bs lead to exploited workers as their immigration status is tied to their job? as in workers can't speak out against workplace injustice for fear of deportation. Yeah, to some extent. They are, they are tied to the, the sponsor for them. They can change employers as long as the new employer sponsors them. So it's probably not as much um, 
abuse as you might think, but it is true. An H-1B can only work for that employer that sponsored them, but they are, they are free to go to another employer if that employer is willing to petition for them. So I'm trying to condense a few of the questions down. Um, it goes something along the lines of what trends do you see happening with um, immigration policy? Was the Trump administration uniquely cruel in its policy? And then lastly, what has changed since the Biden administration has come along? So I'm condensing those all into three. They might be three separate questions, but I'm making them one question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, obviously we have a very long and storied past in the United States of excluding certain groups of people from accessing, you know, the American dream, feeling like my immigrant group came and settled and then the next one that comes along, the next wave, well, we need to keep them out so we can protect this way of life. I mean, that's that's happened over and over in our history. Um, I think the, the Trump administration did bring a unique level of cruelty and openness with its policies because I don't think I had heard personally um, the rhetoric previously um, and just the, 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 I mean, these are rapists, these are criminals. I mean, the, 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 the tone, the shift. Yeah. His announcement of running for president included that language. I mean, it was just, yeah. it was shocking really to me. And I knew from the start that it was going to be a different period. Um, and the damage that was done during the Trump administration was enormous. Um, I mean, we were already talking about overloaded immigration courts, for example, courts that can't handle the number of cases and the backlog. And the changes that he brought were so ideological, they had no um, logic in what was going to happen in within the courts. How, you know, taking away the jurisdiction of the, of the judge to, for example, dismiss removal proceedings for someone, um, just saying, no, you can't, you can't administratively close a case, which is kind of like put it on pause. Um, telling, you know, all of these things that he did just caused the dockets to balloon. Um, he, he was really cruel with asylum seekers, for example, taking away their opportunity to get a work card. Um, everybody knows that, you know, if you come here and you're seeking asylum, you have to support it. There's like, you don't actually have access to government safety net systems. You don't have, you can't get welfare and, and food stamps and things like that. You don't qualify for them. So people try to get work cards so they because they want to support themselves. And under the Trump administration, it was just trying to prevent people from even accessing work authorization so they could work while their case is pending, things like that. Yeah, let me jump in on that too. So on the, on the legal immigration side, uh, we were getting opposition to things that had been approved for, for years and years. People who had been approved uh, several times already for a particular job for like an H-1B, suddenly we're getting either denial or request for additional evidence. There was, there was a, a lot of barriers thrown up just on legal immigration. But, but on, the, on the other side of, of you know, undocumented immigration, there, there, there are not enough resources to deport everybody who's here illegally. And and uh, and yet Trump took that approach, and so there was there was a memo that that during the Obama years that that prioritized removal of, of undocumented uh, aliens, and 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 at the very top were criminal aliens, and then and then recent arrivals, and uh, uh, what one of the first things that Trump did was um, uh, get rid of that memo and said basically everybody who's here illegally is subject to being. Uh, 
deported. So we were seeing stories every day then about, uh, about you know, somebody who's been here for 40 years, uh, has married to a U.S. citizen, has, you know, five U.S. citizen kids, runs a business, hires 20 people, suddenly got deported because they, they, they were undocumented. And, um, and, they, and they had no legal way under, under our law to get it. That's complicated, but no, no legal way to, to get documented. Well, under the previous administration, they, would, they wouldn't have done that because it wasn't a priority for removal. And so what it did, I think, was create a system where, where we were getting less enforcement of the criminal aliens because, because the, our resources were tied up just trying to remove anybody that came into the system, you know. Yeah. As, and um, it, it bred so much fear in communities as well. I mean, people used to feel like they could go to the police station and make a police report if they were the victim of a crime. They could go to the family court and have a custody hearing um, regarding their child and not fear that, th that a court official might arrest them and, and put them into detention. There were safe places. They could go to church. Um, there were safe places, schools. They could pick their kid up from school um, th that, that ICE officers didn't operate. And under Trump, he lifted those. And so it really created a period where everyone was afraid to do day-to-day -day things that should be um, totally acceptable and encouraged even within our communities. There was something like, I think, 100 or so executive orders during the Trump administration dealing solely with immigration, and every single one of them was designed to, to limit immigration, legal and, and illegal immigration, and, uh, and, it, and it really was a, a dramatic change. You know, there, there are certain classes of people in, in the country that are here with humanitarian protections. And you've probably heard of some of these like DACA. Have you heard of that D Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals? So that's people who were brought to the US as, as, as children. And they could, and under o Obama, they, they, could, they could apply for a status that's temporary. It doesn't result in a green card and it can be revoked. Um, and so the, um, uh, but the, the reasoning during the Obama administration was, look, we don't have the resources to deport everybody you say that's here illegally. So we're going to take this group out because this is the most sympathetic group that shouldn't be prioritized for removal. Um, but Trump several times tried to end the DACA program, and he was only prevented uh, from, uh, from doing it by the courts. We also have people here with what we call temporary protected status, or, or TPS, people from El Salvador, different countries that were in such either revolution or disarray or something that we said, okay, if you came here before a certain date, we're gonna not make you go back, but it's just a temporary protection that could be revoked. Uh, you know, if your situation gets better in your country, you know, we can revoke that. Well, Salvadorans, for example, that had TPS have, have been here for 20 years. Trump tried by executive order to revoke all of that. There would, there would have been several hundred thousand people who would suddenly, who had been here for 10, 20 years, suddenly without status. Um, and would have been required to leave. A lot of them are married to a U.S. citizens. They've got U.S. citizen children. Um, and the courts prevented that from happening because they didn't go through the proper procedures. But, but that's how flimsy their status is. It could be revoked by executive order. And he just didn't go through the right processes and it got held up by the courts. But that was the kind of damage that was being, uh, being done by that, that administration. And, and it certainly did create a lot of fear in the immigrant communities. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a comment, and then I have um, one more question, and then I think there was a few that kind of touched on this. Um, 
overall, just what can people do? Um, so we'll do that last question. Hey, before and you do that, could I yeah. add something? Yeah. So Because you were asking about how, how it's changed. Yeah. And, and so when I first started doing immigration law, the prevailing a attitude of anti-immigrant folks was they're taking our jobs or they're committing crimes or something like that. And, and after 9-11, which in 2001, it really changed pretty dramatically um, to all of a sudden people started associating immigration with terrorism, you know, and, and that's, that's still a theme that gets pushed a lot. But um, I, I happened on the other day a debate in 1980 uh, and I want to read a portion of that and, and, and see if you can guess who's made these statements. Uh, the question was, um, do you think children of illegal immigrants should be allowed to go to public school? And, and uh, this uh, person running for president said, rather than talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit. And then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. And when they want to go back, they can go back and cross and open the border both ways by understanding their problems. Guess who said that? Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan said that. And he was debating George H.W. Bush, who said very similar things. So these were the two candidates for the the Republican nomination for president were both very positive. You know, they were saying these are strong people. We, we can use these people in our country. You know, we need them. Let's be sensitive to them. And, and I can't even imagine a Democratic candidate saying that right now, th this kind of, I mean, he, Reagan used the word open borders. And, and he's actually the one who signed the last amnesty bill that we had um, that, that permitted, it was about 3 million people to get legal status here, who was here illegally. So. That shows how much the rhetoric has changed over the years. Wow. That, that's one of those quotes that you're just like put up and you're like, okay, what do you think? <laughs> um, the thing I was going to say is, you know, you were talking, Claire, about um, people being deported and these ICE detention centers where people go to, they are, if we think our prison system is bad, like, these are much worse. Y you're talking, like, eight people to a cell with one bathroom. Like, the, the, and, the, and, then, and then also, what people don't know is there's some people that are there that have been there for months, maybe even some, like, years. Just d d their family, like, has, maybe they have no ability to communicate with somebody. They're just there. They're not being sent back to their home country. They're sitting in a detention center, and... I don't know, it's just, I think that kind of stuff, and I, I don't know if that's like the exact statistics, that's just something that um, I know a little bit about, but um, yeah, it's just, it's. It's pretty shocking that it happens here in the United States. We don't, we think we have protections, we think we have rule of law, um, we have due process rights, but so much of it goes out the door when it comes to um, immigrants. Yeah. And it's, it's it, to me, it's really shocking, it's really inhumane. Um, luckily in Missouri, in Kansas, and I don't know if it's luckily, but we don't have a nice detention facility. <laughs> we have a different system where we have our jails that actually have a subcontract with ICE. So what happens with if somebody were to get picked up in our community, they would end up at a jail and be held, um, and then they would get what's called an ICE detainer, and then ICE would come to the jail and pick them up if they were going to remove them. But otherwise, they, they sit in jail uh, during the time that they're going to have an immigration hearing. So it's 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 a 
it's kind of a lot of people don't know that there's ice detainees right here in Shawnee County and in uh, Morgan County. Uh, I think there's like five different counties in Missouri and Kansas in this in this area that have these subcontracts. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is the last question before what can people do? Um, do? Do you worry that immigration to America and other so-called first world countries causes brain drain and countries of origin leading to perpetual economic poverty? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, there, there is talk about that. Yeah, there is, there is some brain drain, yeah. I mean, the, the U.S. benefits from it, um, but I don't know if it, if it leads to perpetual poverty there, but, but, um, but it, you know, I, I think what that is also saying is that a lot of the best and brightest come to the U.S., and, and we could benefit from it, but... But yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's any statistics or, or anything that to show that that's created. I mean, that that's an argument I hear people say, you know, um, but I don't know that that that's borne up under study, you know, that it's that it's created that. But I, I know it's a it's a it's a talking point. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, I do know there's some programs like the J1, which is an educational program and training program that allows people to come here but it's limited for a certain number of uh, amount of time, and then they are supposed to take that skill and knowledge and experience back to their home country. So there is a recognition that um, we wanna bring people in for training and, and, um, and a sharing of ideas, but then hopefully they'll return to their home country and bring those um, skills to their um, native populations, so. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, last question briefly. Um, what can people do? like? I don't know, is nobody in here is besides them two. Diane, are you, what's your, are you, are you a lawyer officially? No, I'm a, a paralegal. A paralegal, okay. So any, anybody else a lawyer in the room? <laughs> okay, yeah, so the question, we have a bunch of people in the room that might care about this somehow, um, but they're not lawyers. What can we do? I, I know financially supporting, you know, things like the asylum clinic, and then you've talked about some of your partner organizations, but um, some of the questions were, you know, what kind of poli like what what kind of policies can we look out for, and what kind of people can we vote for? But yeah, what what do you have to say about <laughs> what can non-lawyer yeah. people do? It, it's really hard because um, you know I can't use a lot of volunteers, for example, you know, in my day-to-day -day work. But I think it is what great that you're here tonight, that you have an interest in this topic. I think having conversations with other people and expressing opinions that um, that that are informed about this debate, not just rhetoric that we hear that's that's um, politicized and and um, a lot of times driven by fear and hatred and and other other um, things that aren't aren't based in policy. So um, it, being aware, I think supporting policies on a local level that allow people to get forms of ID that don't exclude people from safety net services that build into the community a level of trust and and um, and support that support dreamers for example or other other um, legislation that's pro-immigration um, being active politically understanding candidates position on immigration and that matters when you vote you know um, and then yeah obviously financially just my project is a great um, outlet. If anyone wants to donate, um, you can go to our webpage. But um, other other projects and other uh, re like the refugee resettlement agencies here in town also need a lot of support. 
we don't accept, you know, we don't do direct w social service. Like I don't help people with housing needs and clothing and food, but, but JVS and Della Lamb do. So if those are things that you, that you feel passionately about, you can go to those agencies and they um, have really great programs you can get involved with. Yeah. The, the, the organizations, yes, you said JVS, that's Jewish Vocational Services and uh, mm -hmm. Della Lamb and Catholic Charities are all helping uh, resettling refugees and I know that they'll take volunteers to help even just meeting with them and I know my, my daughter did that for a while and really loved doing it. Um, when, when, when I'm asked this question, I often, uh, I mean, there are systemic changes that, that are needed, but that's, that's very hard for us. And, uh, but I say that, that where, where we start is just treating immigrants as, as human beings. And, and um, uh, because their efforts to dehumanize them in, in our policy and, and so I, I think it's worthwhile to try to go out of your way when you see somebody like wearing a hijab or something, you know, to, to just be friendly to them. And, and I know that sounds very simplistic, but, but some of our policies are really based on just dehumanizing people. And, and so I, I ran across a quote that reminded me of this uh, from Pope Benedict the 16th. Uh, says, uh, while the poor of the world continue knocking on the doors of the rich, the world of affluence runs the risk of no longer hearing those knocks on account of a conscience that can no longer distinguish what is human. And I thought, I thought that was really a great quote because that's the danger we run into. We, we tend to just label people and then, and then dehumanize them, you know, because of it. That's, that was a feature of, you know, the Nazi Germany. You know, you take Jews and, and you dehumanize them so that you're not killing people anymore, but something else. And uh, so. Well, let's give them a round of applause. That was an amazing conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode. Peace and blessings, everyone. <laughs>